We continue in our second week of volume two of Luke, which started with Jesus' credentials before he began his ministry in uh, northern Israel, in Galilee. Uh, he is greater than the greatest prophets, such as John the Baptist and Elijah. He is divine, the beloved Son of God. He is human, the Son of Adam. And he is righteous and sinless, having withstood the temptations of the devil himself for 40 days in the wilderness without food, uh, without, uh, without proper rest, exposed to the elements. He's in perfect obedience to the law. He's the center of prophetic scripture. He is the consolation and glory of Israel. He is the redemption of Jerusalem. He is a light and a revelation to all peoples. And he is the Savior. He is the Christ. He is the Lord. And at this point in the story, then, he is here. And he has arrived. The mission of the Savior, of course, was to save. That's what it means to be a Savior. But what does that mean exactly? Because for the Jews, they expected a Savior who would overthrow Roman occupation, the Roman rulership over the, the Holy Land. They, they would expect a Savior who would be a military hero to subdue the Gentile nations, the non-Jewish nations, and to set Israel atop the rest of the world. They waited for a Messiah that would put Israel above every other people on the earth. They waited for a king of kings who would rule from a throne in Jerusalem. And they're right to expect this because God said that's what the Messiah would do. Plenty of Old Testament scriptures promise Precisely that. And yet, while Israel was so concerned about the political problem, the national problem, God was not. He didn't want to come to solve the political problem first. He wanted to solve the spiritual problem first. So it's important we get the right understanding of the mission of Jesus because Jesus will come to solve the political problem and he will subdue the Gentile nations and he will set Israel atop the rest of the world. He will. And all the Jews who place their faith in him will enjoy that time in his kingdom. And so will all the Gentiles who come to faith in the Savior. They get grafted into that plan as well. But for now, at where we're at in the story, Jesus has arrived on earth, and he has not come to judge. He has come as a lamb, not a lion. And it's uh, the, the mission of the Savior not to be a military hero at this time, he had something else entirely in mind. His mission was to bring peace between sinful man and holy God. Peace on earth among those on whom his favor rests. To uh, the Jew, to the Gentile, to man, to woman, to the rich, to the poor, to the great and to the small, etc., and that's been hinted at from people uh, that have been prophesying about Jesus either before Jesus was born or right around the time when he's born, when he's, when he's a child. That was prophesied by all sorts of people around Jesus. But in today's passage, Jesus will say it himself. He will then proclaim his own mission. And so we'll look at that from uh, chapter 4, verse 16. We're only going to go from verse 16 to verse 30. Today, this might be the shortest passage that we take, maybe for the entire book, but we're going to key in here and slow down and pay attention to it because this is the theme of Luke. This is the thesis. 
This is the big statement that Luke is trying to make about Jesus, and it reveals to us the Savior's mission. We'll take it in in, uh, three legs here. So the first one will be the setting of Jesus' mission, which is chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. That's a rewind to, uh, uh, to looking at some stuff from last week. Then the objective of Jesus' mission, or maybe that should be plural, the objectives. We'll we'll put it that way, even though it's really one, but we'll count it as three. The objectives of Jesus' mission, which is verses 16 to 21, and then the reaction to Jesus' mission, which is verses 22 to 30. Okay, Let's start with the setting of Jesus' mission, starting uh, back in verse 14 of chapter 4. But before we do that, uh, I do want to answer this question. Why do we need to talk about the setting of Jesus' mission? Why? The time and place and stuff. Why is that important? When we think about Jesus, when you think about Jesus, and when you think about his ministry, I think what comes to mind for so many of us is his healing ministry, his power to heal or uh, his power to expel demons, exorcisms, or his power to perform miracles, to calm the storm, to make bread and fish. To do all that kind of stuff, that, that supernatural work was, is the stuff that kind of comes to mind. But that was not the majority of his work. Jesus ministered for three years, approximately, for three years. From the moment of his baptism to his crucifixion, that time of ministry is around three years. And uh, when you think of like the big monumental passages, it's like the triumphal entry where he's on, the, the, you know, on a donkey and he goes into Jerusalem or, and people are putting down palm leaves and saying, Hosanna. Or you think of the, uh, the Pharisees coming up and saying, like, what's the greatest commandment in the, uh, in, in the law? And Jesus says, to love God with everything you are and to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, those moments are a big deal. Or when Jesus overthrows the temple, he does that twice, once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end of his ministry. Uh, when he curses a fig tree and it withers, when uh, he's anointed with oil, which also happens more than once, but when he gets betrayed by one of his own disciples, when he gets arrested, when he gets put on trial and mocked and beaten and crucified. All of that stuff that I just named happened in the last seven days of his life, prior to his crucifixion. So when we think of like what what it was for Jesus to do his ministry, we think about maybe the last seven days or we think about the big miracle moments and stuff. But for the most part, Jesus' ministry during those three years between his baptism and his crucifixion took place teaching, specifically in synagogues. And so I want to just cover the setting of Jesus' mission because this is where he did most of his work. And we tend not to think about him in a synagogue when we think about his ministry. So we're going to rewind a bit, look at the last two verses from last week's passage, which is verses 14 and 15, uh, and we'll even dip into 16, which starts the next paragraph. But look at Luke chapter 4, verse 14. It says... And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Verse 16, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day as he stood up to read. So let's just kind of hang on that for a little bit. Jesus did a lot of teaching. He was called rabbi. Rabbi means teacher. And at this point in the life of Jesus, he has only performed one miracle, which Luke didn't even talk about it. Luke skipped it. Luke skipped almost maybe a year 
of Jesus doing ministry. You know, he gets uh, tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights, and then it says he returned uh, in the spirit to, uh, to Galilee. But there was like other stuff that went on there, and you can look into the book of John to kind of get what happened uh, after his baptism and then all the way up until he started his ministry in Galilee. But the only miracle he's done is in this, this town called Cana where he turned water into wine. And then he went south and, you know, into Jerusalem for, for a, one of the religious feasts and stuff. And then he kind of did some ministry down there and uh, was walking around with some disciples down there. And then he came back up and he came back to Cana where he turned water into wine. And then there was, uh, there was a guy whose, whose kid was sick and so he heals the kid. So there's one healing and, and, and one miracle. I guess you can call the healing a miracle too. So let's just call it two miracles then, right? He's done these two miracles. His real ministry, though, has been for a year ongoing. And it wasn't just two things that he did. He was teaching in synagogues. So if you were to just track in Luke, you'll see in uh, chapter 4, verse 31, chapter 5, verse 3, chapter 5, verse 17, chapter 6, verse 6, chapter 11, verse 1, you'll see all these moments where he keeps going into synagogues to teach. Because this was his, his normal thing. This is what he did. Now, a synagogue is not the same thing as a temple. There's only one temple. There's a temple in Jerusalem. Uh, the synagogue was your local worship center, right? Not everyone could just run over to Jerusalem if you're in a different city or country or different region, whatever. You can't just run to Jerusalem every, every Sabbath. You, you're not even allowed to run on the Sabbath, so, you know. So you can't, you can't go back to Jerusalem all the time. You'd only go back there for the, the annual feasts, the three major annual pilgrimage feasts where you'd go back there. But other than that, what do you do on weekly worship? You would go to your local Worship center, that would be the synagogue. The Old Testament doesn't ever mention synagogues. And that's because uh, for the duration of the Old Testament, they didn't have them. It wasn't until uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came in and took over Jerusalem and exiled all the Jews and stuff. The, the northern part of, of the, the northern region of Israel had already been gone. The southern region, Judah, Judea, is, uh, he took over. He exiles the Jews, and they're all in, in foreign lands now. And they're like, how do we do worship? And so they would get together, and they'd say, as long as there are 10 Jewish men, we can have a synagogue, a gathering place. And so they'd, uh, they'd do that during the, the exile, during the, the time that they were in foreign lands in order to have their worship services. And someone, usually a priest, would maybe stand up and teach the scriptures. But even during that time, they were all very trained in the word, and so it would, it would kind of be passed around and say, you could teach this week, you could teach this week. And they would do that. Every town had at least one synagogue. Most towns had very many if you think about Nazareth, a population of 20,000, it's not going to have one synagogue. Everybody went to worship. They were Jews. And so you just do the math. Even if you say that each synagogue has 100 people, which is generous, that's a lot of synagogues running around. I'm going to give you some time to do the math. You good? If you think about Jerusalem, there's a report from, from one historian guy that said that there were, uh, there, were over four, there were up to 480 synagogues just in the city of Jerusalem. Each synagogue had the same kind of structure. Uh, they had elders who were in charge, and one of those elders was called the ruler of the synagogue. He was the archon. He was the ruler of the synagogue, um, and he, he selected the weekly preacher, 
and he would be in charge of, uh, of the order of the service and stuff. He, he was the guy that was in charge of that. So there was the ruler of the synagogue, which is one of the elders. The elders and ruler of the synagogue, there was an interpreter because the Jewish scriptures were written in Hebrew. The common language by this time had become Aramaic, and uh, because of the number of times that Jew, the Jews were conquered and taken over and exiled and stuff like that, not all of them spoke Hebrew anymore. They all spoke Aramaic. Some of them spoke Hebrew. So someone had to translate as, uh, in, in every service, every week's service. Someone's translating into the common language. And then there was this, uh, this guy, an attendant. He cared for the building. He was a groundskeeper. He took care of the furniture, the scrolls. He, uh, uh, he, he taught like an elementary school, like Beth Sefer, um, house of the book at, uh, at the synagogue. He would do stuff like that. And he would also uh, be in charge of scourging people. Because that's how they discipline. You know, if, if the, you get disciplined in the synagogue, he would take a whip and he would just take you outside and, and he, would, he would whip you. I miss that. All right, so some, some synagogues had daily services, uh, had daily teachings, things like that. You know how like uh, churches, sometimes they have like coffee break Bible study, you know, Tuesdays, th- Wednesdays, Thursdays, something like that, you know? They would ha- st- have stuff like that. And they would have an elementary school. They'd have uh, local courts taken care of in the synagogue, uh, adjudicated by the 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 elders and the ruler of the synagogue. Uh, and all the synagogues faced Jerusalem. And by face Jerusalem, it means whoever stood up to speak the word, that person was facing Jerusalem as he's speaking the word and teaching the word. That person was the one that was facing that way. Everyone else was facing the speaker or sitting around him. But that person faced the temple. That person faced the presence of God, which was in the temple, which tells you that whenever Jesus would teach in the synagogues, he, he, would, he would be there, he'd have the scroll open, he would face the temple, he would face the house of God, he would face his father's house, he'd face the presence of God. But if he's facing Jerusalem, he's also facing the cross, where he's going to go. And he would teach the word, looking in that direction, knowing exactly what's going to happen. This is how worship service went in a synagogue, which is similar but not identical to how we do worship service at church here today. The men and women would sit on different sides, and uh, the most prominent members would sit up in the front. And then uh, you'd have uh, the service start out with the singing of songs, which is, that's how we do it too. You know, you have the singing of songs. They usually sing from the Psalms or the Hallel, which is Psalms uh, 113 to 118. Uh, that means praise, halal. Uh, and then after they sang songs, they would read the Shema, which is the, the prayer of thanks. You know, hear, uh, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You know, that's, that's the Shema, right? And they'd have like these two prayers of thanks that came before, and then the Shema, and then two prayers of thanks that came afterwards. So different people would do these prayers and stuff, uh, and they would read Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. That's the hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. Uh, they would do the Shema. That was every week. And then... Uh, and that would, by the way, distinguish them from every polytheistic culture. They'd say, the Lord our God is one. And they'd say, he's our God. The, uh, hear, O Israel. And they said, love the Lord your God with everything you are. That's in the Shema. After the Shema, the ruler of the synagogue would call on any adult male to recite the Tefillah, which is a series of 18 prayers. And he would read them all. And eventually they even added a 19th to it. Tefillah means 18. But even when it was 19, they still called it the eighteen. And uh, the, the adult male would stand up and read all 18 prayers. 
They'd be exactly the same every week. And after each of those prayers, the congregation would respond vocally, audibly, by saying, Amen, which means, so be it. That was their way to say, I believe that, I receive the blessings associated with it, or I make the same pleas that, uh, that have been said. I participate in that prayer. That's, how, that's what amen meant. It was an affirmation to say, so be it, or let it be, or yes, I agree, I am there, I'm, I'm, I'm part of that. Which, by the way, personal note, that's why I, uh, I personally you know, call on the congregation to respond with the word amen at the end of every sermon, because I do believe that it's on the responsibility of every individual believer to say, I participate in the convictions presented in the word here, to respond vocally and audibly. Yeah, I think you know that. After the, the tefla, a congregation member, which could even be a child, any congregation member, could, uh, could stand up and read a scheduled scripture from the law, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? From the law. One of, one of the uh, congregation members, anyone, could stand up and read from the law, and then someone would teach on it. And they, they had like a schedule, you know, like what's, what's today's passage? And they would follow a schedule. If you were a, a Jew that's out in Babylon, that schedule split the law into 154 parts. It takes three years to complete the law by reading a portion every week. If you were a, uh, a Jew in Palestine, then the schedule covered the law every year. So you went triple the speed. In any case, once you finish that, then you just start it over again. You know, once you finish Deuteronomy, you start back in Genesis and you go like that. After... They read from the law, and then someone teaches on it. Then there was, uh, there was the, um, the, the, like the real sermon. So that was like the warm-up sermon. That was the, uh, that was the teaching on the law. That was shorter. But then what they would do is they'd pull out the prophets. That's Isaiah through Malachi. They'd pull out the prophets, and someone would read a much shorter portion from the prophets and then give a much longer sermon from the prophecies. So what's going what, to what's happen is in verse 16, as we just kind of looked at, Jesus is uh, in Nazareth, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and that's the part that he's going to be participating in. He's going to be the one teaching on the prophet, specifically on the prophet Isaiah. Maybe the ruler picked it, maybe Jesus picked it, who knows, but it would be normal for there to be singing and dancing and for the scroll to be pulled out and passed around, marched around, and they would be singing and dancing while someone's holding the scroll. So you have to imagine that, uh, that there, have, there have been times where Jesus, now being 30 years old, there have been times in his life where he's had that scroll and he's dancing around with the people, leading worship, singing kissing the scroll, and everyone else is, is running around, touching the scroll, kissing the scroll, saying, the word of God is sweeter than honey. He would have done this. And this was the focal sermon of the worship service. This was the centerpiece, the most important part in their regard. It was a longer teaching, and the preacher usually sat down to teach because he was going to talk for such a long time. There wasn't a set weekly preacher any, pre, uh, any competent worshiper could be invited by the synagogue ruler to preach that day. Could be anyone. Anyone who's competent, as far as the, the ruler had uh, decided, I suppose. This, uh, this uh, custom of flexibility of you know, different speakers can come in, uh, that's called the freedom of the synagogue. That was what they called the custom, the freedom of the synagogue. And that was crucial to the spread of the gospel very early on because it allowed Jesus to go into synagogues. Everyone heard of him, and they're like, well, why don't you speak this week? 
The flexibility, that the freedom of the synagogue allowed Jesus to come in and just teach in the synagogue because that was normal to have guest speakers come in and do that very, very regularly. And then, after Jesus' time, the apostle Paul goes around into all the different nations and stuff, and where there were synagogues, that was his first target because they would give him a venue for which he could speak. Not only that, but then Jewish men, because many of them had, would have had experience standing up, reading a portion of the scripture, and then teaching on it, they would be very practiced in sharing what they know about the Bible. And so evangelism was something that was kind of built in and trained in. It wasn't weird to them. You know, if I asked uh, anyone of our, of our people to just stand up and preach, they'd say, ah, I don't know, I'm not comfortable with public speaking. I don't know enough about the Bible. And then they'd give a whole bunch of excuses that Moses gave to God. But the people here in this time and culture, they would have been very used to it. Oh, you want me to preach this week? Okay. You know, give me some time to prepare and I'll, I'll get ready. So that's what they would do. They would have that, that moment where the 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 prophets are taught, and then after that, if there was a priest, he'd pronounce this blessing. Otherwise, some guy would just say a, a, a regular prayer to substitute for that time, and then the congregation would respond with amen. And that's the way that the worship service went back then. It had a lot more prayers involved in the service. Uh, it had multiple sermons. It had a, a more conservative, formal kind of feel to its liturgy, and yet a more free and expressive, liberal uh, expression of its celebration. Were they more conservative than us? Yes. Were they more liberal than us? Yes. They were kind of more everything. And the thing would last for a huge portion of the day. This was the venue and the manner in which Jesus did the vast majority of his ministry. This is what he would do throughout this time, these three years. And we don't think about that too much, but that's what he's doing. And I want you to just kind of hold on to this idea that the majority of Jesus' ministry, the, the prime activity was this, the weekly worship service, the teaching of the word. Because we kind of get into this craziness in churches sometimes to think that you need to, you need to have this big ecstatic experience. You need to pray in tongues or you need to have some kind of revelation or you need to have these, these vivid uh, visions, prophecies, dreams, whatever. You have to pray until there's gold dust on your fingers, etc. And yet Jesus did not emphasize any of that stuff. Where did we go wrong? We, we build ourselves into this frenzy to say that there needs, there needs to be the next spiritual high, the next big sensation. It's not wrong to feel things. It's not that. It's just, why would you put your faith in something that Jesus didn't even talk about? He walked around teaching. And it was the teaching that he expected would make the difference, would accomplish his mission. So then Jesus comes back home to Nazareth after, after almost maybe a year of moving around in different areas. He comes back to Nazareth, uh, and he's going to begin his ministry in Galilee, in northern Israel. Nazareth is in Galilee. He does what he does every Sabbath in all four Gospels. What he does in every Sabbath, he goes to synagogue. This is up to a year after his temptations in the wilderness. Luke's, Luke skipped all that because he wants to bring you right here just to let you know, okay, Jesus is qualified for his mission. This is his mission. And he gets to this moment in the ministry of Jesus because he believes this is the moment that shows you exactly what Jesus is here to do. What then are the objectives 
of Jesus' mission. What did Jesus come to do? Did he come to overthrow Roman military rule? Did he come to subdue nations? Verse 16. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus read from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. That just happened to be where they're at in the prophets. Uh, It seems to be that they might just go in order. Or... It's possible that he picked it himself. We don't know. But the Jews knew this passage. This was a very celebrated passage in the Scriptures because it's a messianic passage. It's about the Messiah. The Jews knew that this was about the Savior, and they're waiting for this. They knew that the Spirit of the Lord, which, if you want to say it differently, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit would be with the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord would be upon rest upon the Messiah to empower him to save Israel. That's spoken of in, uh, right there in Isaiah 61, also in Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 42. You have these moments where it's a known thing that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of God would rest upon the Messiah and empower him to save Israel. And we know, if you've been tracking in Luke, we know that this actually is true, that the Holy Spirit came and rested upon Jesus like a dove at the moment of his baptism in chapter 3, verse 22. That the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, was, uh, was with Jesus and rested upon Jesus. And then remained with Jesus. The Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted, to be tested. And the Spirit was still with him. Verse 14 says Jesus returned in the Spirit, in the power of the Spirit, to Galilee. So the Spirit was still with him. He was filled with the Spirit. Now, this whole thing from Isaiah 61 that, uh, that uh, Luke writes down, you know, he says that Jesus read from the scroll and he writes down what the scroll said. But it's not a perfect word-for-word trans- uh, quote from Isaiah because Luke is a Gentile, so he makes certain accommodations. He's not actually quoting the Hebrew. He doesn't read Hebrew, and so he's a, a Gentile. He, so he won't use the covenant name of God. It, you know, when it says um, the Spirit of the Lord, he writes it like that instead of the Spirit of Yahweh because Isaiah said the Spirit of Yahweh. But he put spirit of the Lord. The the Jews would have been mad if a Gentile was writing God's name down. But if you notice, Jesus says uh, that uh, as he's quoting from Isaiah, he says, uh, the spirit of the Lord has uh, anointed me to proclaim, to proclaim, to proclaim. He says three proclamations as far as our English translations go. It says proclaim, proclaim, proclaim three times, each with the same basic meaning, each to show you the main point of the Savior's mission. The first one is to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim good news to the poor. Second one is to proclaim 
liberty to the captives or to slaves, and recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty or, or to liberate or to set free the oppressed. That's the second proclamation. The third proclamation is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Think about these things. Good news to the poor, liberty to the captives and slaves, recovering of sight to the blind, liberate the oppressed, year of the Lord's favor. If we are being strictly literal, Jesus did none of these things. The only exception would be that he gave sight to blind people. But we don't know if he gave sight to all blind people. And even then, after he's gone, there are still blind people. What good news did he give poor people? How did he help them? Did he help them get out of poverty so that they're no longer poor? Technically, the, the guys that like, started following him around, he took fishermen who had jobs, and now they follow him, they're unemployed. And they were living off of charity. People who just wanted to give to the ministry. He created poverty, if you want to be cynical about it. What captive did he set free? Never once in his lifetime does he attempt to go into a prison to release people. What slave did he walk up to and said, okay, let's get you out from your master's rule? When did he bust out slaves and prisoners? Which oppressed person did he liberate? I mean, R Roman oppression was severe. How did he end Roman oppression? The oppressed were still oppressed while he was around, and the oppressed were still oppressed, and at times even more oppressed after he was gone. So he did restore sight to plenty of blind people, but that, was, that certainly wasn't his whole mission, not for the three years of, uh, uh, of ministry that he was doing. He didn't walk around just healing blind people. He wasn't doing that. He was teaching. So what do we do when, when he says, oh, this is what I'm here to do? We're all here to worship Jesus. He came for the poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed. And one of the problems is none of you is that. So what are we doing here? Jesus even said he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's a reference to the year of Jubilee, which is every 50th year on the Jewish calendar. That year that he said that was not the year of Jubilee. So he, he wasn't really doing that either. So if you read in Isaiah 61, in the strictest literal sense, Jesus didn't even attempt to accomplish the mission that's described there for all three years that he was walking around in his ministry. So why, then, does he say in verse 21, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing? How so? Well, that's not his whole sermon, by the way. It says in verse 21 that he began to say that. So he preached a whole sermon on Isaiah 61 and about himself. He preached a whole sermon on it. And this is Jesus, uh, and it's crazy. He's saying, this passage is about me. 
Jesus is saying, I'm the guy that you've been waiting for. Everything that this thing is talking about, this, this hope that you have here in this text rests on me. That's my mission. I'm doing it right now, here and now. That's me. That's, I am the Messiah. I am the Savior. That's what he's saying. And you'd have to ask, how? How is he doing that? How, you know, with the poor and the captives, etc. And it comes down to that verb. It's the proclaim, to proclaim, to proclaim. Jesus said he, he was uh, anointed to proclaim this, to proclaim this, to proclaim this. Now, his real mission then is to proclaim. Proclaim means preach. Speak forth, to say it, declare it. It's a, a public way of, of talking in order to give a charge or a command or an exhortation or an admonishment, etc. But he preaches. His whole thing is to preach, and he's doing it now in synagogues. He's walking around in synagogues, and that's why he's saying, that's, that's why I'm here, to preach to you these things, to proclaim that's his mission. His, his mission is to preach. It's not to heal. It's not to liberate. His mission is to preach. In uh, chapter 4, verse 43 of this book of Luke, I'll, I'll show it to you. Chapter 4, verse 43, he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. I was sent for this purpose. I was sent for this purpose to preach. I must preach. In chapter 5, verse 15, it says, Great, great crowds gathered around him, uh, and they came, why? Be, they wanted to be healed of their infirmities. And then verse 16 says, But he would withdraw to desolate pr places and pray. That's weird. If his mission was to heal, then you'd think he'd stay there and heal. But it's not. People came for healing, and he's like, okay, this is not what I'm about. And he kind of moves out and does his own thing to pray, to prepare. He did not come to solve the physical problem, to solve the political problem, to solve the national problem. That's not his mission. He came to solve the spiritual problem. And that's why his mission is to preach. That's why we, he withdraws if everyone wants healing. That's why he says, I have to preach the good news. This proclamation that he makes, the, the preaching that he preaches, is for the poor, for the captive, for the slave, for the blind, for the oppressed. And all of that is spiritual metaphor. You have to understand that it's all spiritual metaphor. So let me walk you through each proclamation. Proclamation number one is good news to the poor. Proclaim good news to the poor, right? The, the, uh, the Greek is actually just one word, euangelizo, to preach good news, to evangelize, to preach good news, to preach the gospel. All, you can translate it in all those ways, right? But the, the word proclaim is kind of mixed in with good news. It's just one, one verb, euangelizo. That's the mission. Preach the gospel to the poor. Now, he's not talking about people who have uh, just very little money. He doesn't, he doesn't care about the economic status. The poor is not the panakos, which that's the people with no money. It's the patakos. Patakos, P-T-O-C-H-O-S, right? That's, that's the word. That doesn't just mean no money. It means you, you are destitute. You have nothing. It's not a money statement. It's just you got nothing. Nothing. No no money, sure. No strength, no joy, no hope, nothing. The word comes from the uh, from the, the root word comes from the idea to cower. Someone who's cowering, trembling, shuddering. There's no 
There's no confidence in them. They're huddled up. They're scared. They're depressed. They're hurting. They are alone. They are weak. There's nothing that they take pride in, nothing that they boast of, no, no power to them at all. They have no confidence, no self-esteem, no self-worth, none of that. They are poor, poor in spirit, Patakos. Jesus came to preach the gospel to people who have nothing to their name, nothing to show, nothing to offer, nothing to give. They have nothing. And he came to tell those people good news. He says, I have something for you. I have salvation for you. And I give it to you not in exchange for money, because you don't have it. Not in exchange for good works, because you don't have those. You don't have anything. I give it to you freely. I give it to you by my grace. But to accept it, you have to know that you are patakos. You have to know you're destitute, that you are cowering, that you are poor. Revelation 3.17. You say, I'm rich. Or you say, I, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, patakas. That is an accusation against people who are confident in themselves. Which is precisely the message of the world, is it not? Even in our great therapy and counseling, try to develop self-worth, self-respect. That's what it is. All be like you have something. And Jesus says, you don't realize you have nothing. Luke 6.20, Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor. Patahas. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. Who inherits salvation? Who gets heaven? Those who have nothing. It's the poor, the poor in spirit, as it says in Matthew 5. This has always been the means by which we approach God. It has always been the means by which we... This is not a New Testament thing that, oh, this is so different from the Old Testament. This is how it's always been. It has always been to approach God with fear and trembling. To know that, that uh, you are sinful, unworthy, separated from God. That's why John the Baptist went around preaching a message of baptism, of repentance. Right? That's what he would do. He'd say, like, do you realize you are sinful, unworthy, separated from God? No matter how Jewish you are, you are the same as any other unbeliever. You need to come before the Lord not saying, look at how much I'm worth, look at how much I've done, look at how competent I am, look at how much theology I know, look how long I've been at church, look how much I lead the songs and I do all this stuff. You come before him with fear and trembling, saying, I have nothing to offer you. I can only come because you freely invite Psalm 51, verse 17, talks about how you come to God to worship. He says, the sacrifices of God, the sacrifices you bring to God, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. 
What kind of heart does God want you to have in order to come before him to worship? It's got to be a broken, contrite spirit, a broken and contrite heart. So he proclaims good news to the poor, to the patahas, to those who have nothing. Proclamation number two is liberty to captives and slaves, uh, sight to the blind, and, and uh, freedom for the oppressed. Now, these also are spiritual metaphors, specifically of unbelievers, if you notice. I mean, this is, these are all, you know, for unbelievers to be saved, to become believers. But think about how the, the Bible talks about captives and slaves and, and the blind and, and the oppressed, stuff like that. that. Those are spiritual metaphors for unbelievers in many cases. So Galatians 4.8, for instance, it says, Formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. You were enslaved to idols and, and other religions and other philosophies and other values other lifestyles, etc., you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. You were slaves to sin. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So if you're an unbeliever, you are a slave to sin. If you're an unbeliever, you are blind to the gospel. Blind to the glory of Jesus. Then, of course, there's that issue of the oppressed. Now, technically, uh, Isaiah 61 doesn't have the, the line to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That's directly borrowed from Isaiah 58, 6. I'll, I'll, I'll show you. Isaiah 58, 6, it says, to let the oppressed go free, to liberate the oppressed, to set at liberty the oppressed. Right? It's the same. And to break free every yoke. To break every yoke, right? To, this idea, uh, when we think of oppressed, maybe the way that you and I think about it, we think of like the political system and minority races being oppressed by the dominant race or something like that. That's kind of the, uh, the more common talk, the way that it goes around today. But that's not how they talked about it back then. Oppressed was different. It's, it's, it's someone who's under a heavy, burdensome, inescapable yoke or weight that can't be removed. It's like, I want to stand. I want to walk on my own two feet, but I can't. I'm oppressed. I'm held down. Something bogs me down and I can't do anything about it. Something's against me and I, I cannot overcome it by my own strength. It doesn't have to mean political oppression. It means overwhelmed, overburdened by the pain of life. You try and try but nothing works and you just feel like, I can't get out of my own situation. There's a yoke on me. It's the burden of knowing you can't do anything to fix yourself. You can't do anything to save yourself. You can't be moral enough. You can't be religious enough. You can't be successful enough to save yourself. You are oppressed. You're overwhelmed. You're overburdened. There's an inescapable yoke, an unbearable weight that holds you down. Jesus' mission is to give the gospel, to give good news, to save unbelievers who realize and confess these things, that they have nothing, nothing to their name, nothing to offer, nothing to give, to set free those who are enslaved to sin and fear, to give sight to those who couldn't see the truth of God, to set free those 
who can't save themselves. Jesus came to give the gospel to spiritual poverty, to bring spiritual freedom, to give spiritual sight, to grant spiritual exaltation and glorification. Galatians 5.1. Everyone who's a slave to sin should know that for freedom Christ has set us free. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You're not slaves anymore if you know Jesus. To the blind, John 9.39, Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. Matthew 11.28, For those who are burdened by an inescapable yoke, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Verse 30, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All you have to do is realize you are those things. You are sinful, unworthy, and separated from God. And you must repent, change your mind, and believe, trust in Him. That's His mission. That's why He came. The physical, political, national stuff, that gets solved when he comes back. But here he is to preach the good news, to preach the gospel. And that third proclamation is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Like I said, that's a reference to the year of Jubilee. That's in Leviticus 25 which was every 50th year. Now, if you know, in Israel, they would go, you know, they'd work, 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 and for six days, they would work. Every seventh day, they'd rest. Well, they'd also do that with years. Uh, six years, they'd, they'd do that routine, but the seventh year was a Sabbath year, and you have to rest on the Sabbath year. So then you, you kind of leave your farmlands and stuff, let it lie fallow, and you just eat off the wild stuff that grows, and God would just provide for them. They would just enjoy the Sabbath year like that. And they'd have to, of course, store up for it and prepare for it, but that's how they would do it. Now, every seventh, seventh year, right? Every seventh Sabbath year would be 49 years. And after doing the, the Sabbath year seven times, that's 49 years, the 50th year then would be this big celebration, the, the year of Jubilee. That's what that is, the year of Jubilee. And during the year of Jubilee, all debts are forgiven, right? Anyone owes you money, it's canceled. All your debts are forgiven, all slaves and captives are set free. You don't keep them during the, the year of Jubilee. You let them go. Uh, because slaves and captives really meant that they were indentured servants. They owed money, and so you, you kind of owned them as property until they paid off their debt. But then, since debts are forgiven, all slaves and captives are free. All the families get back the original land that was their, their inheritance, See, because like, you know, you, uh, all the, the land was divvied up into the 12 tribes of Israel and the different families all got a, a allotted portion and it passes down generation to generation. Fine. But then sometimes someone falls on hard times and they're like, I, I can't afford anything. So they'd sell their land to someone else and sell themselves as indentured servants, slaves. And so that's what would happen is so sometimes land would move into other families and things. Every year of Jubilee, that land would go right back to its original family. Everyone would get back what was rightfully theirs. That's what, what it would do. 
There'd be no farming. The land and the people would rest for that year. No work was done for that year. You just eat what grows wild. And Jesus proclaims that he is the fulfillment of the year of Jubilee, saying, I am the one that this is all about. Right? True forgiveness is not in the 50th year. It's in me. True freedom is not in the year of Jubilee. It's in me. True inheritance and true rest, true riches are not in the year of the Lord's favor of the 50th year on a calendar. It's in me. These three proclamations all mean the same thing. Preach the gospel. Save the sinner. Give forgiveness and freedom and inheritance and rest. But then Jesus leaves something out. If you look at Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, if you actually go to the original text that he was quoting, I'll just put a portion of it up. Uh, Notice in, in chapter 61, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God, the Lord Yahweh, is upon me. Because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Then jump to verse 2. It says, to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, if you notice, when Jesus quoted it in the synagogue, he didn't say that last clause there. Right? He stopped in the middle of the verse and he rolled up the scroll and he put it away and he's like, I'm here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I'm here to do all that other stuff. He skipped the day of vengeance of our God. Why? Because that's not why he came. That's why he'll come back. But that's not why he came the first time. So he leaves that part out because it doesn't apply to his life right then and there. So he says, proclaiming the good news, proclaiming freedom and sight and, and you know, liberty, all that stuff, proclaiming that, proclaiming f- forgiveness and, uh, and rest and inheritance. That today, as you hear the good news that Jesus is the Messiah, it's fulfilled in your hearing today. The stuff about vengeance of God, that hasn't been fulfilled yet. That will be when he comes back. So those are the objectives of Jesus' mission. That is his objective, to preach, to specifically call Sinners to repentance and to faith. Now we get to see the reaction to Jesus' mission. Jesus preached that he's the Messiah. People heard rumors of his teaching going around because he was kind of amassing a reputation. How did they react to him? What we're about to see is not just a description of what happens in this moment, which it is, but it's not just that. It will also set a pattern by which most people respond to him. Look at chapter 4, verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? They loved the gracious words. God has compassion on the poor, the enslaved, the blind, the oppressed. He'll save them by his grace. Everyone loves that. Everyone loves that. Jesus loves the people who are at the bottom of society. Everyone loves that. They, they love the idea of love. They love the idea of forgiveness, the, the idea of good moral values. They love all of that. No one hates Jesus for that stuff. That was true back then, and it's true in any age. It's true today. We love the idea of a loving Jesus, a forgiving Jesus, 
a moral Jesus. But then Luke gives you a little bit of a clue that this crowd doesn't really understand Jesus. And the way he kind of clues you in on that is they go, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this the son of Joseph? Now, the way that Luke said it in the genealogy part that we looked at last time, he was supposedly the son of Joseph. And Luke is kind of rolling his eyes like that's not really the case. He's born of a virgin. He's the son of Mary. He is not the son of Joseph. Legally, yeah, he's, he's the adopted son of Joseph, I suppose. That's the way that Luke uh, puts it together. But calling Jesus the son of Joseph skips out on two other ways that he's a son that are way more interesting and way more uh, emblematic of the Messiah. It's the fact that he's the son of Mary the virgin at the time, right? He was virgin born. When you say, Wasn't, isn't this the son of the virgin Mary? Like that would be a huge story to tell. Or if you say, isn't this the Son of God conceived by the Holy Spirit? Isn't this the Son of God? That would be a huge story to tell. To say, isn't this the Son of Joseph? That's nothing. That's, not, that's arguably not even a valid point. The way more important features identify him as something special. Virgin born, conceived by the Spirit, Son of God, fully divine. But instead, they're like, isn't this the kid that grew up down the street? Isn't that Joseph's boy? They either don't know or don't believe or aren't thinking about the fact that he's so much more than that. The crowd might have heard rumors about how Jesus, uh, you know, we heard that he turned water into wine over in Cana. And we heard that later on he came back and he healed someone's someone's kid. Right? And, you know, there are rumors that move about. Those things don't stay contained. People talk about that kind of stuff. Those are reported in John chapters 2 and 4. That's happened during the up to a year that Jesus was kind of doing something else before he came to Galilee. And if that's what they hear of Joseph's boy, that's fun. That's fascinating. There's a miracle worker that grew up in our town. Who wouldn't be interested in that, right? That's exciting. But that doesn't mean that people were actually interested in repentance. They liked the teaching. They liked the, the love and the forgiveness. They, they marveled at, uh, at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. They all spoke well of him for that. They liked all that stuff. But they didn't want repentance. They wanted the vengeance on Rome and on the Gentile nations. They wanted that part that was left out, but they didn't want repentance. They didn't see themselves as poor, patahas, as enslaved or blind or oppressed. They didn't consider themselves like that. They, if anything, their, their self-regard was that they were religious, they were righteous, that they were good, or at least good enough. Right? That, that idea of good enough, they, they, they would be the kind of people that would ask, If I never heard of Jesus, if I never heard the gospel, never heard of the Bible, if I never heard of Jesus, would I really go to hell? Is that fair? And they would ask that because the disposition of the mind in that question is, I'm not that bad. I'm kind of good enough. 
Like, I measure up to divine judgment. I'm good enough. And it would be kind of mean and wrong to bring judgment on someone like me. Because even if I'm not perfect, I'm good enough. And so Jesus knows they don't truly believe. They think Israel, they think they themselves and Israel as a whole was righteous. They believe that the Messiah meant vengeance on Gentiles. It meant overthrow Rome. That's what it meant to them. And Jesus exposes that. He knows what they expect of the Messiah, what they think the Savior's mission is. And so he exposes that. Chapter uh, 4, verse 23. And Jesus said to them, Doubtless you will quote me on this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. For what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. Now, this is all taking place in Nazareth. And side note, this moment is similar to what happens in Matthew 13 and in Mark 6, uh, where he's in a synagogue in Nazareth and people uh, respond poorly to him. And so they sound like similar, but these are two different events. This is early in, earlier in his ministry and those two chapters are later in his ministry. Jesus points out four things in, in what he just responded here to expose and to challenge their unbelief. The first thing he says is... Uh, Someday you're going you're gonna to say, physician, heal yourself. He goes, for sure, un- w- without a doubt, doubtless you will quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself, right? And that's a prediction of them mocking him on the cross. For instance, in chapter 23, verse 35, which I, I'm not going to put that up, spoiler, you know, but uh, someone will see him, he does get crucified, that's also a spoiler, but he does get crucified, and then people will be like, oh, he healed all these other people, he can't even heal himself, that doesn't make any sense. If, if, if he saves all these other people, why can't he save himself? And so that's why Jesus is like, doubtless, you're going to quote to me in this, uh, this little proverb, physician, heal yourself. And he might even say, like, you're going to be saying this to me in just a few moments because you're about to take my, try to take my life. And you heard that I was healing over in Cana. Maybe they're going to say it right then and there on that day. But he, he's going to be known as a miracle worker. They're going to mock him and tell him to heal and save himself because he knows their unbelief. He knows that that's what's going to happen. That's why he calls them out on it. That's the first thing that he just points out. He's like, this is what you're going to do because you don't believe. You think I'm the son of Joseph. You don't think I'm the son of God. Second, he says, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. No prophet is acceptable at home. I get this, right? Uh, I have two older brothers, and then I got like, you know, my high school friends and my church friends and stuff, and they're all very happy that I'm a pastor, but not their pastor, right? Right? My older brothers aren't like, ah, I want to go to my younger brother to be my pastor. Never happened. Never going to happen. I keep praying, but it's not happening. And it's because no, a prophet doesn't have honor in his hometown. You know, it's, just, it's, it's a little bit of a proverb there. It's like no one listens to the guy that they like grew up with and stuff. That's weird. People in Nazareth saw Jesus from when he was a child. He grew up. They don't see him as their prophet and their savior. They see him as like their kid that they're like, hey, get out of the street. 
I don't know why there were no cars back then, but you know. <laughs> Chariot coming by. So, you know, he, he'll, say this, uh, he'll say that little line a lot. You know, the, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. He says it in Matthew 13, Mark 6, John 4. He, he quotes that in multiple places and stuff. But he says, uh, you're not going to listen. You're not going to listen because you think you know me. And so you're not going to listen. A prophet has no honor and is, is not acceptable in his hometown. Third, Jesus brings up this, this story about Elijah and this widow, right, where in 1 Kings 17, uh, God sends this, this famine in the land for three and a half years. There's, there's no food and drought and all this kind of stuff. Um, and so uh, who is God going to help? You know, all these people in Israel need help because God sent a famine because, the, the, you know, the king at the time was, was wicked and all that stuff. And so, God, will you help your people? God, will you help your people? And God doesn't find anyone in Israel to help. Instead, he goes out to a different nation and he helps a Gentile, a non-Jewish person. He helps a Gentile. It's not just a Gentile. It's a Gentile woman. And it's not just a, any woman. It's a Gentile woman who's a widow. Now, that's three... St- Three aspects to remove her from the, the core of the, the best of society in Israel. Three things that they would look down on. And God goes and helps this Gentile woman who's a widow. And he takes care of her and he uses Elijah to sustain her and honor her. And by choosing to help her, that's also actively a choice not to help all of Israel. And then fourth, Jesus brings up this other story in the time of the prophet after Elijah is Elisha. And there's this time where, uh, where there were lepers all over Israel and stuff, tons of lepers everywhere. God doesn't heal a single one of them. But then this other guy, this Gentile guy from Syria, which is an enemy nation, and he's a military commander, he comes in and he's like the guy that would bring military forces and assault the people of God. But he comes to Elisha and he comes for healing. And at first he's like kind of a jerk about it, but then after a while he submits and he's like, I'm just going to do what this guy says. And he does what he says. And he watches himself in the Jordan River like Elisha tells him. And he gets healed and God heals him. God heals this guy instead of everyone else. He heals the enemy instead of the people of God. And so by actively choosing Naaman the Syrian, it's as though God has actively chosen against the people of Israel. These are two embarrassing moments of the most embarrassing moments for the people of God. Moments of outrage. Like, why would God choose them instead of us? And Jesus brings this up to point out and to highlight Israel's waywardness. To say, Israel, you are sinful, unworthy, separated from God. He is not helping you because you have not repented. And you need to repent. That's what needed to happen during the time of Elijah and that widow. That's what needed to happen during Elisha and Naaman the Syrian, the leper. Verse 28. When they heard these things, now remember, they were all marveling at his gracious words and speaking well of him. But then Jesus said those, those things. Verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. 
I don't even know what that means. Like, did he become intangible? I don't know. Did he just, like, squiggle by? I don't know. He could have jujitsued his way through them, I'm sure, but it seems like they just couldn't do what they wanted to do. They, they were able to drive him over up to a cliff, and then as he tried to push him over, he just, nah, and then... Which is interesting because, you know, Satan said if you jump off this, this high place here, angels will catch you. So they could have pushed him off the cliff. Angels could have caught him. He would have risen back up and said, verily, verily, I say unto you, fools, right? And they would have been like, oh, shoot, we were wrong. But instead, he just, he just passes. He doesn't force anyone to believe in him. He just goes, okay, look, if that's what you want, that's what you want. The spiritual pride of the people is exposed. They don't think they need to repent. They don't like that idea. To even bring up those moments in history, they're filled with fury. They want a miracle worker. They want a healer. They don't, they don't want a savior that calls them to repent. If you don't confess that you got nothing to offer, if you don't confess that you're enslaved to sin, blind to truth, unable to save yourself, you can't be saved. Jesus came to proclaim that. And it's a good look at the, the mission of the Savior and the natural reaction of sinful people. How do people react to the Savior? People hate repentance. And so they'll try to kill the Savior. They knew him. They grew up with him. They didn't go, oh, no, don't do that. That's Joseph's son. They said, kill him. That's Mary's kid. No, kill him. But what about all the healing and stuff? No, he told us that we are sinful and separated from God. Kill him. His call to repentance was so offensive, they tried to throw him off a cliff in the town he grew up in. And knowing this, Jesus just proceeds on his mission to call sinners to repentance, to seek and save the lost. He passes through this mob and just leaves. Now, that tiny little story tells us the full trajectory of Jesus' ministry career. He will preach the gospel. He will offer salvation to those who understand their sinfulness, their unworthiness, their separation from God. He'll preach the gospel to those who know that they are poor, have nothing to their name, nothing to show, nothing to offer, nothing to give, nothing to boast in. He'll preach the gospel to those who are enslaved to sin, who are blinded to truth without God, who are oppressed by moral law and unable to work themselves out of it with good deeds. He'll preach the gospel to those who are looking for true forgiveness, true freedom, true satisfaction, and true fulfillment in an eternal solution. But many, most, will not understand Many will hate him for it and want to kill him. They like the message of love and forgiveness, but they hate being told they're sinful and need to turn from their ways if they want to trust in him. The name of Jesus will divide the world into judgment and salvation. It'll be divine wrath for sin, yet on earth peace among those on whom his favor rests. We have then this thought remaining. Many of us here come from different church backgrounds. 
we got a, a really interesting mix here. And some of you have been taught a lot of theology. Some of you have been trained to sing and to pray with great earnestness. Some of you have taught youth group. Some of you have gone to missions trips. Some of you have led worship. Some of you have planned retreats. Some of you have crafted your whole company to just hang out with only your church friends. All of that looks very good, and it looks like faith. And we all love the message of love. We all love the message of forgiveness. We love church. We like to be nice and tame because we like the nice and tame and tolerant, easy Jesus that makes us feel good. Everyone speaks well of him, marvels at his grace. But not everyone hates sin. And not everyone is repentant. Not everyone goes to their small group and says, I did this and I need to repent. This is where I'm wrong and I need your prayer. Not everyone looks to their brother or sister and says, you have sinned against me or against someone that's too afraid to talk to you and you must repent. We like nice and tame and easy Jesus. It makes us feel good. I think everyone will happily admit, oh yeah, I'm not perfect. But not everyone cowers, shudders, trembles before the Lord in repentance. There isn't a reverent and awesome fear in their confession. There's just moral admission. Yeah, I'm not that good. But where is the fear? There is an unmistakable difference when you confess your sins thinking that Jesus is the son of Joseph and he's nice and tame and easy or Jesus is the son of God and there's awe and fear and trembling. Can we approach the throne of grace with confidence boldly? Yes. Why? Because he's freely invited us if you know you have nothing. You cannot go boldly and confidently because of who you are. You can only go boldly and confidently because of who he is. To those who come to Jesus with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, Jesus is good news. He's liberty and freedom. He's truth. He's inheritance and rest. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the ministry of Jesus, for the mission of the Savior.
we believe that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him and has anointed him to proclaim good news to the poor. That he proclaims liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That he proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. That indeed he is the Messiah, he is the Savior. And he has come on his mission to solve first our spiritual problem that we would have peace with you that it would resolve the issue of our sin and our guilt in the court of heaven and we pray God that we would hear the call of John the Baptist to bear fruit in keeping with repentance and then that we would hear the rest of that message from Jesus that for those who repent, there's good news and liberty and sight and freedom and inheritance and forgiveness and rest. We place our trust in you and we pray, God, that you would not allow us to take refuge in our theology or our church proficiencies that we would not come before you pointing to those and saying I have something but that always we'd come before you and say I have nothing and I cower and I thank you for your grace and we thank you for the person and work of Jesus Son of God bless this church Increase our understanding of the Savior as he progresses in this book through his ministry. And may we become more and more like him. All this we pray for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.